Some of the symptoms of COVID-19 are temporary loss of senses, hallucinations, and shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. The symptoms of racism are strikingly similar. Temporary loss of senses. See Amy Cooper, who distorted the voice of a calm, measured Black man and bird watcher in New York's Central Park into one that was threatening her life. And CC Carolyn Bryant Dunham, who did the same to Emmett Till. Hallucinations? See Darren Wilson, the killer of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri, who described the unarmed 18-year-old as a demon and Hulk-like figure as justification for shooting him. Difficulty breathing? See centuries of transcripts citing police officers stating shortness of breath or trouble breathing moments after the murder of a Black person. Hello, and welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, the founding editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. This week, I have the pleasure of talking with Lauren Powell. Lauren is a social epidemiologist with a deep, deep interest in health equity who is named to Forbes magazine's 40 Under 40 for Healthcare this year. That conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Back in May 2020, after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, I reached out to Lauren to see if she might write a first opinion. It was called My Nightmare, COVID-19 Meets Racism Meets the Killing of a Black Person by Police. That was Lauren reading from the essay at the top of the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. How have you been holding up in this so many ways crazy year? Well, uh, crazy is an, is an understatement, I feel. Um, you know, I, I've been holding up with hope, which I feel like still exists. Um, I've been remaining rooted in faith, remaining rooted in community, um, and remaining rooted in in black joy because it still exists even in the midst of of all of the trauma that um, we're all experiencing. What's a great example of black joy for you? Um, ooh, that's a great question. You know, I think the inauguration is an example of, of black joy for me. Um, I am just so excited um, about the vice presidency of um, Kamala Harris, and there was a night actually that was focused on like HBCUs and and kind of celebrating the legacy of historically black colleges and universities, as well as the divine nine uh, and, and Greek life that's so prominent in HBCUs and in the black community. And I remember tuning in and 
my family, other people around the, the country and my family and friends were watching and we were all like group texting and chatting. And uh, I was also watching Twitter, which is always hilarious. But um, that was a moment that felt like, it, it just felt like a breath of fresh air. Um, for one moment, we could celebrate living Black history and, and being present for for this historic moment. Um, and just for for a minute, being able to let our hair down and just chill for for a second. You know, I'd like to set the stage for our listeners about your essay. At the time you wrote it, you, I believe, had recently moved from being the Commonwealth of Virginia's director of health equity to working for Times Up Healthcare. But what's that organization about, and what were you doing for it? Yeah, I was working for um, Times Up Healthcare, which is um, an industry-specific initiative of the Times Up Foundation, was focused on eradicating racism and sexism from the healthcare workplace. And I felt really drawn to that position um, as an extension of my passion and desire to uh, eliminate health inequities and thinking about the role that our healthcare workers play um, in creating health equity and the need for them to feel safe and included um, in, in working in fair and equitable conditions. And so that's what kind of led me to uh, Time's Up and working in Time's Up Healthcare. And little did I know that, you know, just two and a half months or so into my time there, a whole global pandemic would hit and we would be focused on healthcare workers in ways that that we'd never been before, um, quite frankly. And I really had the joy and pleasure in, in that role of um, uplifting the fact that a significant number of our healthcare workers are women um, and they are women of color as well. And so um, it was an opportunity for me to shine a light on the hard work of our healthcare workers while continuing to, to raise a flag about the racism and sexism that, that they still face in the workplace. And it's, it's still an ongoing issue. Very much so. Lord only knows when there will be equity and parity. Absolutely. And pay equity is, is something we certainly talked a lot about. The need for paid time off uh, is something that we talk about. And it's so interesting that in, in this COVID, this extended COVID moment, if you will, um, that we're seeing firsthand how important public health policies really are to to just, um, well, I should say how important like work policies and labor policies are also to public health policies. Um, and that this is the biggest and, and most illustrative example of population health that we may have for years to come. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, this is a moment where we are all, well, I should say those of us who believe that COVID-19 is an actual threat, um, we can see and we're so, um, we're we're very conscious and overconscious, if you will, of, of the germs that exist, of how important it is for, for us to protect ourselves um, as a way of also protecting others. And that is what population health is really about. That's also what health equity is about, right? Is that my health is inextricably tied to the health of my neighbors and to the health of my community. And so if if I am not taking proactive measures to assure the health of those around me, I'm also putting myself at risk. And that's what COVID-19 has underscored for us. It's such a simple concept, but one that's so poorly understood. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think 
not only, as I wrote about in the piece, not only has COVID sort of, you know, brought everything to a grinding halt, but it's it has uncovered these cracks in the foundations of our society that have been there all along. And some people, you know, were were caught in those cracks and have been living in those cracks, while others had the privilege to just walk on top of them and not realize they were there. Um, but this is a moment where um, you cannot look away and you cannot really ignore the fact that even if you are a super wealthy person in the top one or two percent uh, of, of, you know, income brackets in this country, um, that even if if you rely on, quote, essential workers for your food, for your landscaping of your home, for your in-home child care, right, you are still at risk. You are still at risk for potentially contracting COVID or just getting sick, period. Um, and that's something that I I think hopefully will sit with people in a different way once once we're through this um, emergency and makes us really stop and think about the fact that um, all of our policies have health implications, have public health implications, housing policies, paid time off policies, childcare policies, education policies, transportation policies, they all have health implications. And I hope we don't lose that connection um, once COVID is, is more controlled. Your essay really highlighted the collision between racism and COVID-19. We published it just a few days after George Floyd was killed as protests were flashing across the country. Where, where were you living when you wrote the essay? And do you remember what you're feeling and how you were feeling at the time? I appreciate you for asking, for asking that question. I think about it a lot when I go back and, and reread it. Um, I was in Richmond, Virginia, and I, I currently live in Richmond, Virginia. And um, Richmond has a very sordid past and present history of uh, codifying race, of being one of the states that basically single-handedly perpetuated slavery, that at one point had more millionaires per capita um, during the height of slavery than anywhere else in the country, that created laws that that racialized um, and codify the meaning of of race, um, of what it means to be Black, um, and is the cradle of the Confederacy, right? Is the place where uh, the Confederate flag flew and there were Confederate monuments and uh, Confederate museums. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't come as a surprise then that um, the tipping point of George Floyd's murder um, was one that sent like waves of just anger throughout this community, um, and and rightfully so. Um, so at the time, I remember when you reached out, you you emailed and you reached out and asked if I would write this, and I was like, yes. Um, and and I had all intentions of because I, I remember asking you, how soon do you need this? And you were like, as soon as you can. <laughs> Very, very kindly and politely. And I was like, okay, that's a deadline. So um, so I remember wanting so hard to write this over the weekend, but not being able to. So at the time I lived in Jackson Ward, which uh, was the Black Wall Street of the South in its heyday. Um, it was a place of significant Black wealth um, and in a place where there was a, a lot of Black ownership and economic vitality. Um, 
and recently it's been a little bit more gentrified, but a lot of the history still remains. And so that weekend, there were um, protests and demonstrations all throughout Richmond. And I think the the most um, intense of those was, I think, Saturday night where um, the former Robert E. Lee monument, which has now been like repurposed as a place of, of like healing, um, was totally defaced and is actually still there. Um, it's been actually named like a work of art. It's, it's now a part of protest art because it's just been, in my opinion, beautifully defaced. Um, but there was protest there. The Daughters of the Confederacy have a building that was set on fire. Um, and it was just a lot of unrest. And this was all happening in the downtown area. So I could hear all of this and I just couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I was really very triggered. I was um, feeling the pain and anguish of, of my community. Um, and so I wanted so hard to be able to concentrate and write it that weekend, but I couldn't. And that was Saturday, Friday and Saturday, there were protests. Sunday, I was still trying to get it together. I couldn't clear my mind. And it was Monday. And I remember you reached out and was kind of like, hey, how are you doing with the piece? Like, <laughs> we have other people who are trying to pitch things, but I really want you to write something. Um, and so I said, you know what? I have to do this. I sat down and I wrote it in three hours. And that was it. It has that feeling. It has that feeling that you didn't take time to really polish. You just wrote, which makes it it's one of the reasons why it's such a, a powerful, uh, powerful essay. Well, thank you. I did. I, I took a, a minute to uh, <laughs> to to review it. And I edited a couple of things because I, I realized I might start the revolution if I sent it to you the way that it was. So I made a couple of edits, but by and large, it was from the heart. And and I that's what you said. I remember you you said, we don't need something that is, you know, scholastic. We don't, it doesn't need all these citations. We need something from the heart. And I was like, okay, well, this is it. It must have been a strange time. I mean, here you are, a Black woman and a public health expert and you're experiencing this loss in isolation while dealing with a pandemic. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to deal with it in a group, family, and it's another to be alone. I mean, absolutely. I think um, there's so much to be said about the isolation and and just the time that this, this happened, the significance of the isolation. Um, and I wrote about that in the piece, too, that, that this was so magnified because people are like, why, why is this such a big deal now? Especially in the black community. We're like, this has been happening for hundreds of years. I mean, we, we could go through hundreds of names and still not even tick off all of those who have been um, victims of state sanctioned violence and, and who have both black men and black women, black children. Um, so why now? And, and I think the isolation factor had so much to do with it because this was a moment unlike any other. There was literally nothing on TV, right? There weren't a whole lot of sports and you couldn't leave and go to a concert and um, couldn't distract yourself with all these other things that I think usually um, keep us from being so um, tuned in to, to injustice. And you couldn't turn away from it. You know, around the time um, that you were writing this, there were people taking to Twitter, 
other forms of social media, writing essays that were basically saying, don't protest. You took a very interesting approach. You offered that kind of caution about joining protests where, you know, you, you told people that we're in the midst of a pandemic, protesting might not be the best idea. But then you went on to basically say, but if you're going to do it, here's what you need to do, which I thought was a really sensible approach. Well, thanks. And I mean, I don't know that there there is never a convenient time um, to push back against oppression. There just isn't. And so I didn't feel like, as I think about the history of my people, the history of my ancestors um, who are who were slaves, and as I am the descendant of slaves, what would they say? What what would they say about this moment? What what advice would they give? Um, and I just felt like I can't tell people not. This is egregious. Like I can't tell people not to express their pain and their anguish in in some way and to push back on this really hard. Um, but what I can do is tell them how to do it safely. I really was excited to have the opportunity to talk about, there's like a spectrum to activism, right? Like everyone um, isn't in the place to be able to go literally march in the streets, but that doesn't mean you can't still push back and fight back. Um, that doesn't mean you can't still be an activist. Did you have the urge to get out and, and join in? I did have the urge to get out. And I, I did actually go to a couple of protests in my like extremely social, socially distanced ways. Um, so, in, you know, I wasn't just six feet apart. I was like six blocks apart. So, you know, <laughs> the public health professional in me would not allow me to get um, too, too close. But, you know, and I carried other things for people. So I brought like gloves for folks or, or masks for people. But I was so encouraged and so heartened to see that so many protesters were already taking this seriously. Um, they were already wearing masks and there were drives to get masks out to protesters and to get, get them gloves and to get them the PPE they would need. Um, so I was really glad to, to see that. I saw on Twitter, you mentioned your sister, and I, I saw on Twitter that she, you have a sister who's a reporter. Does Did she have to be out covering protests and the like? Is she okay? I do have a sister who's a, who's a reporter, um, and she actually works for the Associated Press. Um, she was okay, yes. Um, this was a really, just really scary time. Um, she's in D.C. and lives pretty close to Black Lives Matter Plaza, so she's been covering um, protests and things on the ground and everything from, you know, the insurrection to um, Inauguration Day and, and Election Day, everything in between. You know, it's the juxtaposition of the fact that um, we both have this, like, front row seat to history in a way that our ancestors would have never been permitted and and have the opportunity to, like, shape, shape the narrative of where this country goes from a public health perspective, from a media perspective, um, it's it's a it's a lot to take in sometimes. <laughs> um, it's something to be grateful for. And at the same time, um, we have to balance our triggers and balance our wellness. Can you talk for a minute about the the juxtaposition of COVID-19 and racism that you read about in the excerpt? What what made you think of putting those two together in the way that you did? I was thinking about the fact that when I usually do presentations on health equity um, and in my role when I was working for the Commonwealth of Virginia, 
one of the things I loved most about my job was trying to help people understand what health equity is when they have really no context of public health. So I would talk to them through allegories like the tooth fairy or like things that everybody has some sort of common understanding of, but break it down in a way that um, connects to health equity. And one of the talks I actually did was uh, talking about the Black Panther, the movie, um, and vibranium and how that's actually like our health equity is our secret sauce. That's like our vibranium. And so those things are really fun for me. Um, and they also, I recognize they stick they stick with an audience. It, it just hits different with the audience. And so um, I was like, I wonder if I could do that here. And I started thinking about mm, what could I make stick together? Um, and I was like, well, we could talk about COVID. Then I had to do some research on what the symptoms really were because we didn't know all of the symptoms at that time. It was still kind of, you know, um, ongoing. It was, it was still a lot of research happening. And so the symptoms were changing. And I was like, well, what are the few symptoms I can definitely hold on to that, you know, seem to have been consistent. Um, so I pulled those and then I started thinking about, hmm, that's a lot like racism. Um, hmm. I started thinking about the story of um, the gentleman who was a bird watcher had just come out like weeks before the George Floyd's, Floyd story. Um Breonna Taylor had just come out shortly before that. Um, and I just started pulling things together. Like I, I need to, I want this to stick. Um, and, and so I just pulled it together and I thought all the way back to, um, Emmett Till and the ways that I wanted people, I wanted to make the connection for people that like, this isn't just with George Floyd. Like there's a history of, in a narrative here of how black people have been treated. Um, and that at the end of the day, racism is a disease. Um, it, it is an infectious disease that spreads much like COVID, right? You don't know it's there until you have it, until you can see the manifestation of it. Um, and I wanted to draw that parallel for the, for the readers in a way that they couldn't um, unsee and, and like couldn't forget because like we were not forgetting COVID. We're all like obsessively trying to make sure we don't have the symptoms of COVID. Why are we not that obsessed with making sure we don't have the symptoms of racism as well. Well, that's the $10 million question, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, it's been nine months since um, you wrote that essay. In looking at what's happened since then, do you think that federal or state or local governments have done a better job of prioritizing Black communities in their COVID-19 responses? Oh, that's hard. That's a hard question. Um Yes and no. I think that um, several governments, you know, following um, the George Floyd um, assassination have prioritized declaring racism as a public health issue, um, have really made these very declarative statements around being anti-racist and prioritizing health equity. So um, I think that is a step. I think, you know, making those very public statements and commitments are a step. However, um, a declaration without funding does not lead to change. So a lot of these are are just declarations, right? They're, we're claiming public uh, racism as a public health issue. Well, why don't we treat that much like we treat COVID, right? We declare states of emergency 
for infectious diseases like COVID. Where, at what point will we uh, declare a state of emergency and racism and, and put um, dedicated resources and funding behind uh, eradicating that as a threat? Um, so, so that's one one piece of it. The other piece is that you know I I can't overlook the fact that testing is still inequitably distributed and it's not reaching Black and Brown communities. That vaccine uh, rollouts have been in in complete shambles and have really not actively pursued um, Black and Brown people, and that we are fighting still this um, this notion and this feeling of mistrust. Um, but at the same time, some of the language we're using, I'm, I'm really disturbed by. I think, I think vaccine hesitancy places too much of the weight on the shoulders of the people who have been marginalized and who have been on, on the end of medical exploitation to somehow not be hesitant about a system that has never truly included them. Um, whereas in, instead, I think we should be framing this around trustworthiness. That is, is your institution worth trusting? Are you as providers worth trusting? Um, are you as public health agencies worth my trust? And that's a different question because that places the onus on these organizations, uh, these public health, you know, and healthcare organizations to um, to make themselves trustworthy. Um, so I think that there are some some steps being taken. I'm. Um, very excited about the Biden plan um, for COVID-19. I'm, I'm glad to see that there's so much diversity. Um, and I know, you know quite a few people who are helping out with that. So I'm really glad to, to see that their plans are going to prioritize Black, Brown, Native um, communities, people of color. But I also want to see us um, get out, I want to see government in general, um, get out of the comfort of being behind the four walls of an agency and getting to the community level. If we have to go knock door to door, like we do when we're canvassing for campaigns, if we have to go do that, we should do that in places where people may not have transportation, in places where the elderly are homebound and live alone, uh, in places where um, black and brown communities are, are just economically disenfranchised, we have to be willing to do that. So, so setting up so many like, you know, mass vaccination sites and mass sites for testing and things are still leaving out the most marginalized. And until um, those folks are prioritized, um, I'm, I'm not going to be satisfied. So you've had a really busy year. In addition to working at Time's Up, I understand you started a consulting business. I have, yes. Um, I have started um, a consulting business and... Um, I created, actually, this happened at the beginning of COVID. I created a company called The Equitist, um, which is like, think of health equity or the word equity. Equitist is someone who is a specialist in equity. So um, that's the name of, of my company. And we're a niche um, boutique consulting firm that really focuses on moving organizations from um health equity and theory to action. So that's something that I've been very passionate about and something that I've done um, everywhere that I have worked. I've, I've moved from 
thinking about what health equity would look like in theory here, or like theoretically, you know, if we were to prioritize equity in this rollout, it would look like this to actually doing it. Um, and that's the step that I want to see healthcare and public health institutions take. I want us to move beyond the frameworks of understanding um, the social determinants of health, of being comfortable saying structural racism and institutional racism to actually combating those forms of racism um, and stopping them from, from the positions that we're all in. And I understand you've made even another change this year um, and you're now working for Takeda. Is that right? I am. Yes. This 2020 into 2021 has just been a metamorphosis of of a year. I am the inaugural um, vice president of health equity and community wellness. So very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a a brand new position that has never existed at Takeda, um, but really hasn't existed to my knowledge in the entire industry. One of the big problems with clinical research as you probably remember from your time uh, working in Boston, helping with clinical trials, is that there are so few people of color who participate, often because of huge barriers. Is that one of the things that you hope to work on, opening that up, opening clinical trials up to people of color? Absolutely. That is a major imperative here. Um, the underrepresentation of minorities in clinical research has been a problem for a very long time. And um, this is actually what I studied in my dissertation. This is what I studied in grad school. So this is a full circle moment for me and one that makes me proud to know that my 120 plus page dissertation was not in vain. So um, <laughs> boy, very, very few people can say that. I I know. I'm so grateful. Um, but what I learned then and, and what I kind of know now as well is is that um, this is about the need, again, to to build institutions that are trustworthy and to um, impart um, impart a, a trustworthiness to um, diverse communities. And so I think a part of that and one step in that is really helping to educate um, the community on on what research is, on what clinical research is and what it isn't, and how some of the things that happened historically um, that led to medical exploitation, like the story of Mrs. Henrietta Lacks, um, the story of story of the um, United States Public Health Service, um, study of untreated syphilis at Tuskegee University, um, and so many other instances um, that are really seared into the minds and to the experiences, the cultural experiences of African-Americans in particular in this country. Um, I think it's important that we acknowledge that, but that we also show um, how some of those protections are now in place that weren't there previously. And so I think, you know, that will be a major imperative um, in in moving us towards um, trust and building trustworthiness and also just being um, a face in the community, uh, in diverse communities that are there to, to actually build up the community and contribute to health, uh, health equity um, outside of the need to recruit for a trial, right? Like we need to be building relationships, not just um, identifying sites where we can recruit people. And, and that will be the difference that I'm hoping to bring. Well, I can't think of a better person to help establish that trustworthiness and uh, make those relationships than you. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. 
Oh, thank you so much, Pat. And I, it's, thank you so much for the invitation, for the invitation to be on the podcast and for the invitation to write. Um, it, it was truly one of the highlights for me of 2020. So uh, I'm grateful for you for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. Thanks to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado. Thanks to executive producer Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.